Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. One of my favorite things about this podcast is talking with people who have done incredible things in politics and in government and then gone on to do really interesting things in industries and projects that do not seem to overlap at all with government and politics, but the skills and experiences they gained earlier turn out to convert really well. We've talked with guests on this show who have gone from being a staffer to having a career in sports or business, advocacy. They've gone on to become elected officials themselves or uh, be very active in philanthropy or in journalism. Well, today we're going to add to that list. And what we're adding to that list is someone who went on to have a career in the fashion industry. My guest today is Hildy Curek, founder and partner of Artemis Strategies, a boutique strategic consultancy that works with clients to align their marketing and brand strategies with their core values. Hildy is one of those incredible people who has worked with legends in two very different fields. After a career in political fundraising, where she worked with some of the biggest names in democratic politics, including President Barack Obama, first on his 2008 campaign and eventually uh, as finance director at the DNC during the 2012 reelect, she was also asked by none other than Anna Wintour to be executive director of communications at Vogue. Hildy's career started with an internship, and today she finds herself advising clients like The Met, Nordstrom, Condé Nast, and The Skin. She has been featured in The New York Times, Forbes Magazine, Fast Company, and many other publications. I was so glad to be able to talk with Hildy for this podcast. She and I recorded this episode on Monday, October 3rd. I hope you enjoy it. Hildy Kurek, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, as you know from listening to, to some of our ep- episodes, I like to start at the beginning and you know find out a little bit where people grew up and, and what family life was like and how they found their way into politics. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I am a born and raised New Yorker. I talk about from the mid street, mean streets of Midtown. I grew up on 52nd and 1st. I'm the only child of um, separated parents, had a very New York story. They never got divorced, basically, ever, but they separated when I was two. And I um, had and have a great relationship with both of them. And they had a great relationship with each other. And I say that because I think that really set me up for so much success in my life because they were so united i should say yeah um both of them are writers uh which is interesting because i don't necessarily think of myself that way but they were both creative both writers my father was a speech well he started in the foreign service so he had government service he was a fulbright scholar and then he was a foreign service officer in brazil uh and then he went on to be a speech writer mostly public affairs speech writing and his uh he worked Fleischman Hillard, Hill and Knowlton, Citibank, when it was called Citibank, had they used to have the best Christmas parties that I would go to uh, <laughs> as a kid. Nice um, Yeah, great, exactly. Twinkies abound. Um, and then <laughs> my mom worked in advertising her whole career. She was one of the senior most women at Gray Advertising. She was on the creative side, uh, ran a creative group over there. And I spent a lot of time at her office after school and loved being around that and and listening to her creating campaigns for various um, clients. So both my parents worked full time. Uh, I think that was also, in hindsight, very important to me and proved very important in my life and my trajectory. And so how did you meet politics? It sounds like your father worked in government and politics, but how did you know that was for you? I didn't (laughs) at all. Uh I sort of fell into it. Um, My father's best friend was a woman named Mary Ellen Keating, whose brother was brothers. She had three brothers who um, were very, very successful in the world of politics. Richard Keating, Tim Keating, and Tommy Keating. So um, I remember we got 
I think it was through them in 92, I went to my first convention. I am proud to say I've been to every convention except 96 since then. I love convention. Wow. I'm a real dork about it. I love collecting the pins. I love trade. So that's more on that later for your con convention episode. Yeah. Um, but we went to 92. My dad and I did, and I had never been to anything like that. And the, you know, I know you've been to conventions and for those listening, it's an electric experience to be on the floor in the arena, wherever you are, to that energy and that excitement is had been unlike anything I had ever experienced. Yeah. Um, I volunteered for the Clinton Gore campaign. I mean, I was 16. I you know stood out on the street and handed out lit, but I didn't really think about it. Um, I fled down south for college. I really wanted a different experience. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I really knew I didn't want to be in New York forever, like right at that point. So I went to Nashville. I went to Vanderbilt University, which was very much unlike anything I had ever experienced before um, and really took me out of my comfort zone, which was great for me, but, you know, awkward at the time. And... Um, Someone gave me, my cousin gave me a great piece of advice once that said, you have to have internships right away, as soon as you can. And that's really going to help distinguish you. So I got some internships in PR firms and did that. And then the summer before my senior year, um, Tim Keating was kind enough to help me apply for a White House internship. And so at the time, and you're nodding, and we're going to get to the really... Um, convergent part of our story soon. Um, but I applied for a White House internship and I didn't know what office to apply for. And like many others, you're like, oh, office of the first lady or the vice, of course, the vice president. Sure. And yeah. Tim was very clear. He was like, you are only to put one office. It is the office of legislative affairs. <laughs> and that is the only office you will put. And that is the best time you will have. And of course, he was right. Um, the internship was the second half of the summer of 1998. Yeah, 1998. Um, and I remember I got that inter internship and it was a Thursday morning at 745 in the morning. And like most college students, I was sleeping after yes. maybe a bit of a night out. And the phone rings and this booming voice on the other end goes, so you want to work at the White House? <laughs> <laughs> And that was Jeff <laughs> Forbes. <laughs> and that was the beginning um, of, of the rest of my life. Um, and I mean, it, those those are so competitive. First of all, I mean, I think everyone who yes. works in politics knows, I mean, getting a, a White House internship is so hard. Um, and then the role that you had was as like a, well, I got, keep going. Keep going with the, with the internship well, experience. Yeah, you know, because you worked in that office. And so I think I will say right off the bat that being a Ledge Affairs alumni basically set me up for most of my career, I would argue. Yeah. I think it, it I felt so, of course, Tim was right. It was the best office to be in. I was surrounded by legends in my head of sort of democratic legislative politics of the Clinton world and many names who are still familiar today and who just took every internship under their intern, I should say, under their wing, who supported us, who gave us substantive work to do while also, ex you know, expecting the day to day to happen like most government offices and, you know, under resourced. So there is very little there's sorry under resourced so i would say interns had a lot to do and they counted on the interns to really support the office and the and the work so i dove in and you did everything i mean i remember going and delivering stuff up to the hill back and forth all the time so you got to yep. know all the senate and house office buildings i was mainly on the senate side Again, not anything I knew at the time, just sort of placed there, and I loved it. Yeah. I, You watch a ton of C-SPAN all day long. It's your best friend. Yeah. You, you meet um, you meet members of Congress. You know, you host, the White House will host any number of events um, 
all day, every day, from bill signings to congressional picnic to, you know, any type of reception and members are invited. So it would be legislative affairs' job to invite the members and then, you know, keep their RSVPs and then greet them and their staffs when they arrive and bring them to the event. So that was, I have so many hilarious stories of, you know, I'm all of 20 and so green. (laughs) But it's heady stuff, you know, of like, of just being, being in the White House and greeting uh, elected officials and sometimes foreign officials, just being part of the operation of that building is really exciting and energizing. It's historical. And yeah. you, it never, ever feels stale. It never feels rote. I felt honored, excited, giddy, yeah, nervous right. every single day. Every day. So you caught the bug and you, you had to go back to school. Had right? to go Did, back to school. So you finished, you finished undergrad and then what? So again, Tim was right. See how many times I can say that in, the, in this podcast. <laughs> He, Ledge Affairs was an office that had a history of hiring its interns if you did a good job. So I remember, well, there were a number of people who had internships during the school year who, or even in the summer, who were asked to stay and not finish school. And we had a wonderful director, uh, Chuck Brain, who I remember took it all rightfully so very seriously. And these were these, you know, young people's futures. And he would call your parents and make a personal commitment and say, if you hire Jim, if you let me hire Jim, I will make sure he goes back and finishes college if I have to drive him there myself. So that wasn't my experience, but that was a number of my friends' experiences. So I go back to school and um, a woman named Virginia Rustique, who worked in the office, you know, I had heard that they had openings, um, they had openings called and invited me to apply and I did, excuse me once again, invited me to apply and I did. And kind of, I remember getting that call and then that letter in like May and it's like unthinkable. It was unreal. I mean, yes. Yeah. Do you still have that letter? I am sure I do. (laughs) I hope you do. I hope I do. I seem to have, I'm sitting here in my basement you know, with the other, it's the only place I let my husband put our framed memorabilia. <laughs> so I'm sitting at the letter, at our, my exit letter from President Clinton. I'm looking at that, but I, yeah. I'm sure I have it. And, and that's the way the journey began. I remember we had two weeks after I graduated college to come and, you know, find a place to live. And, you know, I had never lived on my own before, found a little efficiency like right near GW. And I have a vivid, didn't really know anyone in DC. And I remember I didn't have a phone and I crossed the street and I called my mom to say goodnight. And I was like, "Wow, well, I'm here. Okay. (laughs) Like, bye. You know? And I remember distinctly, I can, like it was yesterday, that feeling of being alone uh-huh. Like that first time you're like, all right, I'm really on my own and being scared mm-hmm. and also being really excited because it was the first time I felt like I had, in some ways, a blank slate. Right. Yeah. Boy, so you got to spend the next year and a half anyway, it sounds like, yeah. in, in the White House. Um, it was the end of the Clinton administration. We all know what happened in 2000. Um, and then you pivoted. So you had been in legislative affairs and, you know, making that operation work for the Clinton presidency. But then you uh, you changed. You shifted from kind of policy, officialdom, legislative orientation to politics. So can you tell us what you did next? Sure. A pivot seems to be, if I had a podcast about my life, it would be called She Pivots. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, which is in you know, I guess in the looking back what I thought I would do, but it it is. I took a lot of leaf of leaps of faith in my career. Um, knock on wood. So the Clinton administration is ending. And I think what I realized um, quite clearly was I didn't want to go up to the hill. That okay. felt like the natural path, right? A lot yeah. of people leave as I was a specialist. You know, I wasn't I was a legislative assistant and a lot of people will go up 
be, you know, an LC or on the Senate side, maybe if you're lucky or an LA on the House side and or on a committee and you sort of you start on that path and, you know, the escalator takes you and you keep going and it's, a, yep. you know, or you go back to another administration and things like that. I think I knew at that point that wasn't for me. And um, how come? What was it that didn't appeal? I think I knew I wanted to come back to New York. And I think I felt also that staying there would keep me very boxed in. Uh I would be, you know, like, that's my life now. I've decided that that is it. And I don't think I just think I knew I didn't want that. Uh huh. Because like this town is very like legislative focused. And if you were working in in those positions, you kind of felt like, well, this is this is what happens here. Yeah, I think I felt like this was going to be it for me. You know what I mean? Uh If I did Uh this and it would be very hard for me to leave. I didn't want to necessarily I didn't know, but I didn't think I wanted to be a lobbyist. And also there wasn't an issue that I had focused on or drilled down on where I felt like that's where I wanted to dive in policy wise either. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think so I was more of a generalist and and but I wanted to stay involved in the working of politics slash government. I wasn't ready to leave yet, but I just think I felt like the the hill was a very distinct track. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the special assistants in the office was a gentleman named Peter Jacoby. And I remember he said, well, why don't you go meet Sherry Ost, oh, who at the time was the finance director of the DSCC? You know, you should think about fundraising. You're organized. You, you know, have a good way with people. You know, why don't you, you have you ever thought about that? I said, no, I have no idea what that means, but sure. So I went up to see Sherry. And the offices uh, were at the DNC building at the time on South Capitol. And I remember connecting with her immediately. We're still friends today. And I remember going around that office with her and seeing so many women. That was like a distinct thing that stood out. Yes, that's true. At the time, yeah, women were dominant. You know, there were a lot of women in fundraising and in leadership positions in fundraising and running things, running committees, running leadership packs. And I felt like I that was really appealing to me. Also, what I quickly learned is fundraisers usually are the first hired on campaigns because they need the money. Yep, They're the best paid on campaigns and they have the most access. So I didn't really right. know that at the time, but you quickly learn that. And the skill sets were similar in the sense of you have to be hyper organized. We well, had to do that at the White House. Diligent. You know what I mean? You had to be able to hold your own. Yeah, that's right. And you were right. tested the same yep. way you were at the White House. It wasn't the butterfly feeling walking into, you know, South Capitol Street, but it was pretty amazing when you were, you know, I remember during those two years I was there, you know, I was doing call time with Senator Dayton and it was just mm-hmm. me. So you right. had to have the list, you had to make sure the numbers were correct, you had to make like all of that was on you pretty quickly and we traveled. I did the um Northeast region. I remember when you traveled you know, we and I just I and I purposely didn't do I don't know if this was where they placed me or what I didn't do D.C. So I didn't do D.C. fundraising, which is its own separate beast. I did more regional fundraising, which I'm in hindsight very happy about. Um, and it was great. I loved it. Yeah. You know, I one of the challenges there are so many challenges uh, to political <laughs> fundraising. Yeah. I mean, really so many. But I think something that's underappreciated by people who aren't in politics is that one of the main challenges is the candidate or the elected official themselves. Like they do not relish this activity. They try to avoid it at all costs. And then when they're like put in the cubicle with a telephone and their finance director to go through a thick binder of phone calls, they're not really happy to be there. So if there are, you know, incorrect phone numbers or, you know, something's missing on how to pronounce somebody's name or a grandchild's name is missing, they get upset. Yeah. And you bear the brunt. That's such a good point. I um, it's like 
it's so hard to take pride in something, which we all want to take pride in our work. And I certainly have taken pride in my work um, in fundraising when working with people who don't value it. You know what I mean? Yeah, or, that's so right. I, and I think that is something that many fundraisers deal with. I think, you know, how do you, to exactly to your point, how do you work with candidates that maybe don't want to be there? And how do you make them feel, how do you make that time the least unpleasant it can be, you know? I will say I was very lucky to work. I think the committee's a good place for that to start because most of the time, the senators who are there, you're working with either, you know, whether it's the chair who is definitely motivated to be there and wants to help or the majority or minority leader or even individual senators, they're in cycle and they know they need help. So I think the committee is a good place to gain that confidence and that pride. Um, But then I quickly went out on campaigns, but I was so lucky. I worked for Congressman Dick Gephardt, who ran the DCCC and also was planning a run for president. And I worked for his reelect, which we would then transition into his presidential, then, you know, short-lived presidential campaign but he he was one of the best i've ever seen yeah he got it he got the value of it he understood he expected all the things you just said he expected good staffing he expected the binder to be up to date he expected the notes to be right he expected the phone number to be right. all of that but he respected you the staffer for doing it i mean i have a vivid memory of sitting we would he would sit, I think he'd give us, you know, five hours. I mean, to me, it felt like 10. We were there whole day. I mean, who, around a conference room, there were eight of us with our binders. I was doing, I think, like the Midwest, Florida, you know what I mean? Yeah. All these random states. And he would sit there and read the hotline, print it out. <laughs> yep. yep. Read it. And you got someone on the phone, you'd be like, uh, Jim, I have the minority leader for you. Can you take the call? And you would put it, and you'd be like, sure. And you'd put it in his face with the call sheet. And you'd be like, yeah, here's an event. We're going to be in Chicago. Ask him to come. Go. And he was a maniac. He was amazing. <laughs> and <laughs> Incredible. It was. And But that's... I, I, again, I do think... I was so lucky to have those be my formidable experiences. Yeah. Well, and they, you know, that is fundraising, political fundraising is hard. And to your point, it's not respected, you know, by people outside of the field and even some within the field. It's like uh, the the stuff we have to do and wish we didn't have to do. But it's what puts gas in the tank for every other element of a campaign. And it just and it, it is in some ways brute force. You know, it just takes yeah. volume of calls and meetings and events and there's no way, th- you know, no way out but through. Exactly say. right. You can't hire field organizers unless you have money in the bank. Yeah. You can't have money yeah. in the bank unless people donate to you. Yeah. And you have to remember, this was also before the internet spigot, you know, yes. as we people right. like to remember. And, um, you know, we can talk about this later on, but I went on to work for Senator Obama Um you know, two campaigns, three campaigns later, or two campaigns later. And we started before, you know, the internet did not turn on in December of 20, 2007, 2006. You know what I mean? It did not mm-hmm. turn on yet. So there were a group of us led by Juliana Smoot who were doing that, you know, brick and mortar work to build yeah. the foundation. And so it is, there is no way but through. But yeah. I always think doing that, it made me think of like, you know, a one man band. I mean, when you do a presidential campaign and you do it, uh, you know, not for an incumbent and you're sort of in the long shot territory and you're doing a region and you're like going and setting up the name tags and staffing the candidate and making sure the event, like doing the catering order and the making sure the room looks good, collecting the check. I mean, you're literally like wearing every single hat. Yeah. It teaches you all you need to know. 
Yeah. In my well, and you're putting on these little mini plays. You know, anytime the candidate's time is being exposed, you know, to the public, right? Whether it's a big crowd, you know, or whether that's a small venue, it's a there. There's a there's a theatrical element where all the things need to be right. Yeah. And they don't get right without a lot of attention to detail and work by someone. And this and and the earlier the campaign, as you said, and the, and the longer the shot of the campaign the more an individual does yeah. to make those moments work. Yeah. Um, but I, I do want to ask you something um, because you, you know, you had worked for the party committee. You got to work with some great members while there. And, and throughout your career, you've worked with some terrific big uh. names like Dick Gephardt and, and Barack Obama and Tom Daschle uh. and, and many Best. others. Um, but you, but you were doing that um, in many cases as the owner and operator of your own business. Uh, so what made you start your own company? Well, necessity. I didn't know. But basically, I, so as you may remember, after Iowa, Gephardt suspended his campaign. Um, I remember coming, I was in the um, airport the next day. And I mm -hmm. remember um the phone rang and one of Dick's donors who I had gotten to be close friends with who ran a, a law firm was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm crying in my soup here. Like, right, I'm yeah. really depressed and a little hungover. Like, <laughs> and he's like, well, you're going to come work for me. And I was like, well, what am I going to uh, do? And he's like, you're going to help me. We're going to figure this out. And then I remember getting a call. So, OK, I was like, all right. Hmm. So I go home. I was living in New York, back in New York at the time. And Tom Daschle's campaign called because he was up in 2004. And they said, we'd like to hire you to do New York fundraising for Tom. And I was flattered, you know, yeah. great. So that's how Cura Consulting was born because two people wanted to hire me. And my accountant said that that's what <laughs> I needed to yeah, do. It's fabulous. And I wish I had had more training to be honest with you, I had wish I had like been better prepared to understand what that meant and to make, I mean, I was fine. I didn't hire anyone. It was just me, you know what I mean? Working out of my house and do, you know, and, you know, I took on more campaigns and when people were in cycle, I worked for Senator Bill Nelson that way. And I worked with other um, individuals as donor advisors, you know what I mean? Throughout different cycles, giving money away to various um, candidates, most democratic candidates. So, it was great, but I kind of felt like I was lost and I wish I had had, in terms of the business sense, and I wish uh -huh. I had had more training and even resources to figure out like, okay, here's what you should be doing for your account. Like you should, you know, here's how to handle your, your business affairs, you know, like get a great accountant, ask these questions, like what can you take as a deduction? What can't you take? How, you know, and I just felt like I was sort of flying blind there. Yeah. So- um, I'm going to get to this, but you you founded a second company, Artemis Strategies, yeah. which you, you run today and, and we're going to get to. Um, just when you reflect back on that initial experience of starting and running your own company, what are some of the things that, you know, inform how you run your business today? Good question. Um, well, I ask better questions of my accountant and mm -hmm. I have a great accountant. I think, honestly, that's the number one advice is find an accountant, business manager, whatever, that you really like and trust and who is understanding of you where and meets you where you are. Um, I think that the nature of start having my own business when I did in my 20s gave me a taste of an independence. And it showed me that I could work on my own. No one in my family had ever worked on their own. They all worked in big yeah. companies. They all had, you know, no one. So it was scary. You know, my parents were nervous for me, of course. No one really understood it. But it taught me that I had that confidence to do it. And so, you know, fast forward almost 10 years when, you know, or more, more than 10 years, probably 15 years. And, you know, we start Artemis Strategies. Some things were more familiar. And this is a very different business, so we can get to that, and I have different goals with it. But it, I felt like, okay, this is from, I know what I have to do here. Like, this is, I know the steps to take, you know, and, and what, 
what I need to do to to build a foundation. Yep. Um, we're about to get into your post-politics career, but before we leave it, I just mm-hmm. want to note for our listeners. So you end up fundraising for Barack Obama early on in his campaign, uh, in, in, for his 2008 campaign. And as you said, you know, it, it was, it was a competitive primary, obviously, but he was not the shoe in. It was, you know, the, the longer shot of, of the, uh, of the candidates and, ultimately wins. Um, and it, it, obviously, in, in, incredible for the party, for everyone who was involved in the campaign, for the country. Um, and then you go into the DNC. <laughs> you eventually become the finance director at the DNC. Um, and you raise money for the DNC through the, the 2020 reelect. You mentioned earlier conventions. So I do want to ask you, um, that, that convention... What are you know? What was Which your one? role? Uh, well, I was <laughs> you know I was thinking 2012 because you were at the DNC at that time. But obviously the the 08 in Denver was obviously hugely like exciting. And remember, and it went right up to the wire. We yes. didn't know until the end of June that we had secured right. the nomination. I remember where we were that night, and so we walked into convention like sort of it had you know the plane had already taken off, and we're like jumping on board mid flight. So. That was an incredible convention, but from a, a fundraising point of view, it was really, you know, you're ha- interesting and it's an interesting moment. And so what is the convention experience for someone who, you know, <laughs> high level fundraiser, right? Uh, and it's a, it's a, you know, five day event, very, very intense. Um, you know, what was your experience? What is the experience of somebody so high up in <sighs> fundraising during that convention? I mean, I don't think Do I'll you sleep ever. No, but I you don't want <laughs> right. to. I I don't think I've ever had more fun. My friends who may or may not listen to this podcast, probably not, will make fun of me. And I mean, I am never happier than at convention. It is both the most fun and the hardest thing you'll in many ways that you'll do. It's a sprint. It's the Olympics. It's the Academy Awards. It's every call it all of that every night. Um, what's interesting is is. So it's basically, at, you know, when you're finance director and you have region, you have regions, you know, and so you have directors in each region and you have, you know, what's so interesting, complicated about convention is you have the party. You have a lot of fact, a lot of parties to the party. You have the national party and the campaign, which are usually one and the same. And you have the convention host committee who's spent usually five years before the convention go is even put on raising money. Yep. You know, we're in this right now. New York is bidding for the 2024 convention. You know, that host committee is raising money, identifying supporters. They need to secure endorsements, funding, you know, agreements from all the major relevant parties before the, the, the national party will choose them. Right. So all these forces come together for five days. And then you have all the other stuff that happens all around, like, you know, the corporate parties and the, you know, all of the interest group parties and things like that. But so there's what we do at convention and what I love about convention. So which most of the time are the same, but we have to take care of our supporters, people who have spent in many times years working and raising money and asking their friends and hosting events and knocking on doors and doing, you know, writing letters and doing phone banking religiously. That was the amazing thing about, well, for all the presidential campaigns I worked on, but certainly for Obama, when you write a check, the people who wrote checks, whether it be $2,300 or $500, or, you know, when we got to the party committee, $33,000, they all did other things. They all were so invested. You don't get involved wow. in a presidential without being invested. It is the most intense campaign I think you can do because the donors you work with, it's the most important race in the world. So they feel it and they know it and they want it to be successful. So they don't just give a check or host an adult party. They go to Iowa. They go to the early states. They knock on doors. They phone bank every week. We, you know, they show up and like, that's, what's important to know, I think is that people who give money, it's not like they're some faceless check. Like they put in so much blood, sweat and tears into these campaigns, you know, just like everyone else involved in these, in these efforts. Yeah. 
That's such so, a good point because that's not associated. That's not how people think of the big donors. Of course not. And look, they're yeah. amazing, fun events that I don't want to lie. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I didn't go, <laughs> but Oprah hosted Obama in 2007, and that was amazing. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't go. The staffers who got to go, that was incredible. But like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that's cool. I yeah. went to some pretty cool events. Like, uh, I okay, saw so Bruce let's... Springsteen and Billy Joel perform yeah. together. Um, like so, yeah. So we're, we're leading up here to a pretty, a pretty cool experience uh, that led to a pivot for you. So, as yeah, I understand yeah. it, right, in in your work um, at the DNC and, and maybe beforehand, you cross paths with Anna Wintour. <laughs> so, can you talk about how how you guys met and started working together? Of course, yes. So it was actually 2007. So okay. I met Anna through the late Andre Leontali. So Andre Leontali, many may remember, was a very early and um, big supporter of then-Senator Obama. And I've told this story before, but we were working, our finance, we only had a finance office in New York because New York wasn't a state that was in play. So they weren't going, you know, that early, certainly. So they weren't going to invest money in a political or, you know, grassroots office. So it was just us. We were the only Obama office in New York. And one day, as I like to remember and tell it, the door swings open and Andre Leontali in all his glory and beautiful cape struts it, walks in with Lee Raswell in tow, who is smoking. (laughs) And I'll never forget this. And he said, I'm here to help. We're here to help. (laughs) And we were all like, "Uh, okay. Like we didn't really know what to do. And so... We talked to him for a while and we pretty, we said, you know, this is a finance office. We would really love your help. Would you, you know, we're making calls because you have a lot of, you know, we had a lot of interns making calls for an event that was coming up. I can't tell you which one, remember what it was. Would you want to make calls? Sure. So we, pr- Lee leaves, at, you know, leaves probably pretty, maybe 45 minutes hour after. Andre stays for three and a half hours. Wow. And he continued to put in time like that and travel on behalf of the campaign. And and just attend, I mean, he was a surrogate for the campaign. He traveled for the campaign. He came and volunteered. And I was actually standing next to him in Grant Park the night when um, they announced that President Obama won. And it is one of the most amazing memories I have. After he had made calls for 12 hours that day, GOTV calls. So... Um, he was really my first, I owe a lot of this next phase of my career to him. And it wouldn't have been that way, I don't think, without his guidance and also obviously knowing him and meeting him. So I'm very yeah. honored to have done that. Um, so anyway, so Anna had met the pre- uh, then Senator Early too. And I remember, <laughs> I guess she called the office and I guess no one got back to her. And Andre called me and in his voice, which I will not try to mimic, was like, Hildy, when Anna Winter calls, you must call her back. (laughs) And I was like, "Okay." (laughs) And so I did. And that's what sort of started it. I think um, since this podcast is called Staffer, I will say I think being all the things I learned being a staffer were all traits that. Anna, to this day, A, embodies herself and B, really values. Organization, all the same things, right? Diligence, um, timeliness, and presentation. Right. And, yeah, you know, I had learned those. And so off we were. And so it's just sort of, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, well, so she asks you to be, so after the, oh, the yes. 2012 campaign, right, she asks you to be executive director of communications at Vogue. Your experience had been in political oh, fundraising, yes. right? And now <laughs> you're taking on this giant role. She clearly, you know, she said, she's been reported, uh, you know, and has said publicly that, you know, she took a chance on you. But yeah. What I interpret that to mean is like she saw something in you that so she had confidence you could do that job, perhaps even before you, you know, had that confidence. Oh, definitely. So, right. So what did what do you think she saw um, that maybe you weren't as aware of as you are now? 
I think she saw the traits that we discussed that I knew she valued. She trusted me. And I asked her this. I mean, and I was, you know, I started as director of communications and, and I got the executive director title later. But I said, you know, you know, I know nothing about com- I've never spoken to a reporter in my life. Like, in fact, I would have been fired as a fundraiser if I did speak to a reporter. What what are you? And he, she goes, I know, but I trust you and we'll teach you the rest and it'll either work or it won't work. And I think that that was first of all very freeing on my side because I didn't have to fake it till I made it. I mean, I was still nauseous every single day for six months, but it wasn't people, you know, she knew what I didn't know. So I could, I could ask those questions, but I think that she saw that I was eager to learn and that I, you know, wanted, I worked hard and I wasn't afraid of her. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been afraid of any of the amazing people I've had the opportunity and pleasure and privilege to work for. They're humans. And I don't know whether it was campaigns or my training at the White House or being on the road. And so I was thinking about this in preparation for this podcast. The disconnect is too... It's too much now between who the candidate is and the constituent or the human that they're trying to talk to. We're all humans. We all put our pants on the same way, our skirt on or whatever you want to wear. And I think that that gets lost. There's too, you know, and even more so in this digital age where you're looking at what, you know, videos or Instagram or social or of, you know, an image that people have shaped and created. But in the end, like whether you're Anna Wintour or you're Dick Gephardt, you're all human or Barack Obama. And seeing that human side of them, to your point, when they're not happy to be at call time or when they're really hungry or when they really want to just say goodnight to their kids, or you know, that's important and that teaches yeah. you a lot. So I think I've never been afraid and and you know, I I think a lot about, you know, there's an there's a way to say no. People always talk about that all the time. Like, how do you say no? Like, were you afraid? Or what if give, I don't want to, you know, give bad news or whatever. Or there's a, you're not going to shout it at them. You're not going <laughs> to be mean about it. There's a respectful way to say, you know, this is what I think. You asked my opinion. You're the boss. We're going to do whatever you want in the end. But I just want to offer my opinion or here's the bad news. And you develop that trust and that rapport that, you are someone who can deliver that. And mm-hmm. and I think it yeah. served me well, especially with her. Well, the other thing about working up close with people who are so famous is you do get a, a, a more well-rounded view of them, right? They, they, they're famous. They have certain characteristics um, that they are known for. And obviously, Anna Wintour has like, you know, their movies, their <laughs> books, their quotes, yes. right? Right. Lots of, um, lots of reputation about being challenging to work for. Once you get behind the curtain, you get to assess, okay, I see the reality on which this exaggeration is based or that, you know, here's some things that are missing from the story. So how, you know, what did you observe in terms of, okay, the, you know, here's the reality and here are these things that I learned from her that um, many people around her like me are benefiting from that, you know, don't get as much time and attention. I think she's the hardest working person I know. So that makes me work harder too. So when she is demanding or exacting, you know, we've all know bosses who are demanding and exacting and don't do the work themselves and aren't putting in the time. So it, and I'm not saying everyone has to work crazy or hard, but it doesn't always feel like we're in it together. She mm-hmm. always, I mean, she's the first one up. She's work. She responds to every email. She is incredibly um, available, and that is a really one of the her great gifts. And she is a great delegator. Um, I would also say, and I don't know if others who you talk to experience this, but sometimes in politics, your expertise gets lost. People stop asking you what you think and you're just an executor even at some of the highest levels 
other personalities yeah. dominate and take over. You know what I mean? And your brain, you know, your special sauce or whatever is sometimes lost. And usually in my experience, that means it's time to go. Not, you know what I mean? Time to look for someplace else, but it happens. And I would say that what was it was so incredible about Anna in 2013 and still today is usually the first question she asks is, well, what do you think? Hmm. And she, I'm not the only one. You know what I mean? Yeah. She is really solicits opinion. She wants to hear different voices, different viewpoints, you know, and she takes it all on board. And I think that I, you know, talked about this. I've spoken about this before. You know, not every female boss has to give you a hug at the end of the day or compliment you on what you're wearing or ask you, you know what I mean, how you spent your weekend. That doesn't mean that they're not a, that doesn't mean they're mean. That doesn't mean they're a bitch. That doesn't mean they're cold. You know what I mean? And I think that yep. that gets lost, you know, because what matters is loyalty. And this is a woman who I've no, you know, has supported me and my career you know, for the past 15 years. So, you know, okay. she was also the first person to call when my father died and the first person to send a note when my son was born and my daughter was born. So like loyalty matters. And sh that is something that I think those who know her or work around her in the fashion industry will definitely speak to. Yeah. Um, you, yeah, I, I've talked with people who, after politics, knew they always had a, you know, something that they were interested in. Um, one of my guests, Amanate Kobina, like loved sports. So when he got out of, you know, politics, he was like, I'm going to go find a job in the sports industry. Did you know you liked fashion? No. 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 <laughs> no just I mean, I loved to... clothes. I'm not going to uh -huh. lie and be like, oh, my God, I just discovered that they're clothes. Sure, sure, sure. No, I always had like a healthy <laughs> shopping habit. But what I didn't know was who made my clothes. And yeah, I didn't right. understand what went into it. And not just the craftsmanship and the production and the creativity, but then radiate that out, the supply chain. And, you know, I do a lot of work now with sustainable fashion. Like, I didn't understand any of that. I didn't understand the massive economic impact that American fashion, especially, but, you know, all fashion has. I mean, you're talking about, you know, Fashion Week, we were at an event with... Um, Mayor Adams, and I have to get you this right step, but you know, he was saying New York Fashion Week is more, provides more economic revenue for this city than the Super Bowl. Like, wow. So you're talking about, you know, and, you know, billions of dollars of business and jobs. And that's what was so important when we start, you know, after the pandemic, when the world shut down, you know, we started a common thread. And it was like, we have to do something which was our immediate response to try to, A, put a face to those behind the fashion industry who are suffering, the pattern makers, the tailors, the production uh, that was happening right here in New York and around the country, and then to offer grants. You know, we raised private, Anna raised private money and we offered, you know, grants to businesses. But that's what, you know, you talk about, one of the reasons I loved what I did at Vogue and at Condé Nast is because I got to use and transfer some of that political energy and excitement, you know, there, because she is so engaged and the brand is so engaged. And so is Condé Nast in these conversations around sustainable fashion, economic development, you know, supporting small businesses. So these were all, you know, natural continuations of things that um, felt familiar to me, just from the yeah. meaning of public policy. Sure. Side. Yeah. Well, um, so today I want to talk about your current business, as I mentioned, Artemis Strategies. Another um, pivot. Is, here we go. Another one founded in 2017 yes. um, with the mission of guiding companies to understand, articulate, and express their core values in everything they do. Mm -hmm. And you were just talking about um, how Vogue and Condé Nast, like companies today are involved in more than just the yes. business of their business. So uh, can you... Can you talk a bit about, like, from your observation, when that's done well, when a company is acting in accordance with its values, what what should a, just a member of the public or a regular consumer see? Well, I mean, I think, you know, certainly one of the gold standards is something like Patagonia. You know, yeah. look, I mean, that's the most visible. I think people know that. But what I think is even more interesting is that 
is this trend that I saw starting, you know, 2016, a little bit before, and has certainly accelerated, accelerated since the murder of George Floyd and the Me Too movement and all these things is that CEOs are now be are expected to have positions and stance on society's issues. And the data shows that as people's trust in faith and government, sadly, wanes to solve problems, you know, here they're looking to their businesses and their CEOs to do it for them, whether they work for those brands or whether they are using their dollars to purchase those brands. So, or spending their time and money. So it was so interesting to me that CEOs like Tim Cook and Bob Iger of these publicly traded iconic American companies were coming out and taking stances on DACA. And I also yep. would argue that the Trump administration certainly fast forwarded a lot of this work, right? Because it brought so much of this um, front and center to be in opposition. Yep. And, you know, um, so I thought that was very interesting. And I thought that this means that comms is going to have to change and what you say is going to have to change. And that we were uniquely positioned to help, frankly, you know what I mean? But you have, and what Anna taught me too is, you know, she's incredibly disciplined about her philanthropy. You're talking about a woman who spent 20, over plus, 20 plus years supporting the Met, you know, the New York CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund since 9-11 and founded the Youth Anxiety Center at New York Presbyterian along with Vera Wang and Tori Birch and others to really support mental health, uh, provide mental health services, especially for young people. So she's disciplined in that. And I think what, you know, I saw be effective is, you know, and what we talk about a lot at Artemis is you don't have to stand for everything. In fact, you shouldn't. But you should go back to what your core values are as a company, what is your mission? What's your reason for being here? And what are your values? What do you expect of yourselves and your employees? And to, and figure out what that means you stand for and stand for it. But don't just say it. Don't just post it to Instagram. Create meaningful programs, both internally or externally or both, that show your commitment. Make it deep. Go deep and go deep for many years. And that, back to Patagonia, will, you know, you'll have more luck, I don't want to say, you know, of really cementing that in in consumers' minds and certainly in your employees' minds, you know, for years to come. That is so well put. Um, so let me ask you this. You've been through a, a, a wide range of staffing roles and running your own company and being in the private sector. What advice do you give to people who might want transitions like the ones that you had, but might be nervous or not know how to make that kind of leap? It's totally scary. And I want to acknowledge that. And I have been scared at every moment, at every point, you know, starting Artemis, moving to fundraising, coming to especially coming to comms. It's scary. And I want to acknowledge that. But I also think what's so important especially coming from politics. And I want to like super emphasize this point because I think when you work in politics and I speak to a lot of people, you, and I was so guilty of it, you have this tunnel vision because you're, you have to, you're working so hard. That's all the world you know, you're head down, you're going every day and you can't even think, you know, there are other, these great jobs out here, but you're like, I can't even begin to think about how to take them. I'm exhausted. Like I, my brain yeah. is full and I remember leaving in 20, you know, we left in the dead of night in 2013. We literally packed up three days after inauguration with our two year old son, got in the car and left. We didn't tell anyone we were leaving. People called for drinks, you know, like three days later, we're like, we don't live there anymore. Like we left and I, we had saved up money so I could take two months off and do nothing. And I had not not worked since I was 16 and I did nothing. And I saw a career coach that someone within politics had recommended who is who I still talk to today and so does my husband and who I love. And I did nothing. I like literally got up and didn't have any and it was really foreign and then really great. 
like with nothing to do. And you have to clear your head. You have to make some space and take the time to clear your head, get out of the tunnel, think, talk to people, whether it's a coach or friends, think about how you can imagine your skill sets transferring to these other areas and figure out what other areas excite you. Because I guarantee your skills are going to transfer. And the biggest question I get is, how do I make people outside of politics understand my skill set? And how do I know what I want to do next? And those are the two questions you have to answer, but you can answer them. They're not insurmountable in any way. And that time was so critical to me to be able to feel like a human being again, to feel like I had more to offer and that there were other areas out there that I wanted to explore. And I I could explore them and then say, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, maybe that's not what I want to do. I want to do something else. But like, you really have to give yourself that time and space. Yeah. And sometimes working in politics or government, the hardest thing is to stop. Oh, it's such a good point. I'm so glad you said that. Yes, everyone's afraid to stop. Yeah. If you get off the treadmill, you'll lose power, proximity, access, whatever it is. Oh, yeah. I know. I remember that when you said it, I now I got like the shivers. I remember <laughs> I remember that feeling. Do you remember that feeling when sure. you left? Yeah. 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 How you wow. felt like you weren't going to be worth anything? Right. <laughs> and and to your point like the the thinking through of skills and and what it is that you want that only comes in moments of quiet and was when yes. when you're when you're when you're going full bore it is hard to find those moments of quiet it's almost impossible yeah it's like superhuman yeah you have yeah and and i promise you there is you you listener dear listener there is life after politics i promise Love it. and it's fun jim agrees yeah. Hildy, I could talk to you all day. Um, We're coming up uh, on the top of the hour. I have one last question for you, and it's a question that I I like to ask of all my guests. I would like to raise the funds for a Hall of Fame to staffers and then put it on the National Mall and fill it with inductees that other staffers nominate. And so you have worked with an amazing array of people in your career, some of whom we got to hear mentioned today. Um, I'm wondering if you had to nominate a staffer for this Hall of Fame, who would you nominate and why? I've thought about this question, Jim, and you're right. I have worked for amazing, with amazing staffers, for amazing staffers. And so many of them have taught me a lot, like the how to write the value of work, all of it. We could list it. I'm going to be a little cheesy and say I have to nominate my husband, Jared Bernstein, who is also a longtime staffer for Mike Bloomberg. You know, he was the unnamed intern in Ed Schuyler's podcast when he talks about feeding in the fax machine numbers with an intern (laughs) from John's. That's my husband. I did not know that. Oh, (laughs) that's funny. Oh, great connection. I know. So I, he is one of, he's the best staffer I know. And I say this not just because he, in all the facets of his career now that he's done, you know, and especially he's a, he really mentors and helps a lot of people. He's also a vol, you know, the, he's a volunteer firefighter, um, is I see him employing all the great skills of staffing in support of others. Like he staffs his friends, if you want to put it that way. Like he mm. helps people be the best version of themselves, which is what a staffer is supposed to do, right? Like you're supposed to be able to support your principal and make them achieve whatever the desired result and or feel the best or whatever it is. And I think he definitely does that. I love I love that definition of being a staffer and I love the nomination. Um, and I've also really loved spending time with you oh, today. Oh, thanks, Jim. And I so, just so you too. appreciated it. Um, it's great having the opportunity to talk with you. And please tell Jared that I say hello. I will. And thank you so much for having me. I really feel honored to be among the incredible guests, some of whom I've worked with and for for many years. So you have a real amazing who's who roster. So I'm honored to be among it. Thank you. Thank you. 
I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.